Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Chris. Good to talk. Agenda today, um, I want to look at the US inflation data that was released this afternoon. It was an inflation number that was awaited with great anticipation by the markets over the last couple of weeks. Um, We have a lot going on in the UK that you want to talk about. There is a story in the New York, or at least a column in the New York Times yesterday, featuring a really interesting um, discussion between two right of centre conservatives and the title says it all really the party is over for us where do we go now basically these were slightly right of centre commentators who were at home in the republican party they now feel the republican party is no longer their home so uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff that comes out of that that i think our listeners would find interesting and i also want to talk about a couple of Irish economic releases. We had the unemployment data yesterday and we also had the latest data from Board Bia uh, talking about the agri-food export performance in 2022. Two Irish items here. Um, I was speaking at a conference this morning and somebody came up to me afterwards saying how much they loved our coverage of the Irish economy that nobody else was doing it in the sort of depth that we were doing it. And I was thinking back in our days working in Bank of Ireland, for example, the stockbroking economists did all of this stuff. They're pretty much gone from the market as far as I can see at the moment. So there, there is a gap to be filled there. And I hope our listeners continue to enjoy our coverage of the Irish economy because um, I think for our domestic listeners particularly, it's hopefully interesting to see what's happening in various areas of the economy. And for overseas listeners, as we've said before, and as some of the comments we get back have said, um, it's great from an external perspective 
to get a perspective on what's happening in the Irish economy. I'll keep going in that regard. So starting, Chris, with the US inflation data, uh, the headline inflation number came in exactly as expected by the markets at 6.5%, down from 7.1% in November. And the core rate, which excludes food and energy, fell back to 5.7%. So these numbers are basically consistent with what we've seen in Europe, Canada, etc. over the last couple of weeks. Actually, because of energy prices, uh, headline inflation rates are starting to come down, moving in the right direction. Okay, I would hasten to add that a 6.5% headline rate and a 5.7% core rate of inflation is way above the sort of 2 2.5% rate that the Federal Reserve would desire. But still, having come from over 9%, um, it does represent good news that the inflation picture is improving. I agree. It is definitely worth celebrating the fact that inflation has fallen. Actually, there was a small fall in the absolute headline price level last month in the States, a, a, a tiny, tiny piece of deflation, which is always worth remarking on. So we've got headline inflation down for the sixth consecutive month, as you say, 6.5% year on year. It's The peak was 9.1%, I think, last June. As you say, the core is 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 was up 0.3%. And what that all amounts to is, is, is actually, if you look at the charts behind all of that data, or the charts that describe that data, is that most of the inflation that is there took place in the first half rather than the second half of last year. And that, that's all good news. And that's led to, in the last 24 hours or so, two Fed governors, at least, at least two that I've found, and there may be more, saying there, and this is a quote, leaning towards a 25 basis point increase rather than the 50 that we had last time. There's a Fed meeting next month. The market calculates the odds of these things. In Yesterday, they were saying that 77% probability of a quarter point hike next month, and that's risen in the wake of these inflation numbers, to an 88% chance of a 25. As you say, it's, it's a lot of it is energy. A lot of it's actually gasoline or petrol, as we call it. And that fell in the States by 9.4% and is down 1.5% year over year. There's lots of things going on there. And one of the things that kept inflation going, if you like, uh, last month was shelter or housing in both the way in which the, the peculiar way in which the United States, the fiscal agencies calculate this, the actual cost of housing real time in the States via both house prices and rents. Uh, has stopped going up at, at worst and at best is actually coming down, particularly when it comes to rents. But the way in which this appears in the inflation data, it appears with a lag. It's a weird statistical thing. So one of the headwinds that inflation has got, or is that a headwind or a, a tailwind? One of the things pushing inflation up over the course of 2022 was housing. And pretty soon, but not yet, it's going to be pushing inflation down. That's all good. There is a sting in the tail. There always is. And the problem is core services, uh, the non-energy, the, the, the much bigger sector of the economy that is the services sector. That went up half a percent on the month. And that, I think, will still cause the Fed some residual worries. The second thing, moving away from the actual inflation data, is the state of the labour market. 
And I think that you, you might have something to say about the state of the labour market in Ireland in a moment, because I think that there are echoes on both sides of the Atlantic. I know this is true in the UK as well. The labour market in the States is still very tight. And the weekly jobless claims, the number of people who are hitting the unemployment rolls, fell to a three-month low in the States uh, this week. So that suggests that the labour market has yet to really respond in any meaningful way to the Fed tightening. There could well be a lag effect here. It may well be about to, but there's not much, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that it is at the moment. Yes, it's, it's, it's good news. From a market perspective, I think that the, market, the, the stock markets, at least on both sides of the Atlantic, were moving in the early days of January of the new year to anticipate this. So I wouldn't expect too much, uh, initially at least, of a market reaction to this in the sense that the markets, I think, saw this one coming. We've had good news on inflation for the last couple of months and the markets were essentially saying, well, we expect some more good news. So it, it wasn't a big positive surprise in the way that some numbers have been in previous months. It, as you said at the top of the show, it was in line. So, yeah, it's good news, but there are still some residual worries about inflation and some, some debate about where the peak in interest rates will be in the United States, a debate that's echoed on both sides of the Atlantic. I raised the point about the US labour market there, Jim. How, how are things that way in Ireland at the moment? Before I get on to that, Chris, um, can I just uh, allude to a guy, Ed Giardini, who's an investment analyst in the States. And I remember back in my Bank of Ireland days, all those years ago, I used to subscribe to his newsletter, but he has come out over the last couple of months pretty upbeat about the US economy um, and more and believes that the, the slowdown will be nothing like as severe as some are predicting. And that's that's kind of resonating with what the discussion we had about Chris Giles of the Financial Times in our last podcast. But Ed also said that the um, US equity markets had bottomed out, that the bull market, the bear market ended last October and that the bull market started. And indeed, the S&P, I think, is up about 10 percent since he said that in October, but he reiterated that over the last 24 hours. So I think that's an interesting perspective. But uh, And I think we've always felt that, at least I have certainly, that equity markets would not start to go ahead in a sustainable way until there was clear evidence that, number one, inflation had peaked and that, number two, the central bank rate tightening um, had a visible end. So maybe we're starting to move in that direction at the moment. But I, I, I suspect... Uh, there's still a bit of water to flow under that particular bridge before we can call the all clear on markets. Um, central banks clearly will be watching, as you've said there, what's happening on the service side of economies and also what's happening in terms of the labour market. Um, and certainly from the European Central Bank's perspective, that's going to be a key focus. Uh, yesterday, we got the latest unemployment data for Ireland, referring to December and the headline rate of unemployment fell to 4.3%, down from 4.4% in November. That compares to 5.1% a year ago, December 21. And prior to December 19, the inflation rate was running at about 5%. So it just shows that the unemployment rate is now lower than it was pre the COVID crisis. Okay, just specifically in the 12 months to December, there was a decline of 18,600 
in the number of people unemployed. Um, the level is now down at 114,500. So that sort of unemployment rate of 4.3% basically describes an economy very, very close to full employment. And indeed, you know, I continue to get the message back from people that recruitment and retention is still a big issue for many businesses, notwithstanding some softening of parts of the economy, notwithstanding what's happening on the global technology side, the Irish labour market still appears to be pretty tight. Depending, of course, on what happens, the economy in the next 12 months, I would expect actually the labour market to remain pretty tight. I don't see a significant increase in unemployment. The other piece of data uh, that I found interesting, and I guess this resonates with me as a farmer from Waterford originally, Board Bia, which is the state agency responsible for the marketing of Irish food and beverages abroad. In other words, it's responsibility for food and drink exports. It published the results for 2022. The total exports of food and beverages was 16.7 billion. That's a record high. And it's also 22% up on 2021. Across the board, dairy grew very strongly. Livestock, prepared consumer foods, drinks, um, all grew in double digits. Uh, seafood was a little bit slower at about 3% and horticulture a little bit lower as well at 2.7%. But the overall number, 16.7 billion, 22% growth, shows that um, the most important indigenous export sector continues to do very well. And in this regard, um, it's worth thinking about the impact of Brexit. The reality is that Irish food and drink exports to the UK continue to grow strongly. And last year, the UK accounted for 32% of those exports. The European Union accounted for 34% and the rest of the world then for 34%. But the point really is that exports to the United Kingdom, despite or indeed because of Brexit, continue to grow strongly. If you think back to leading up to Brexit, the commentary here in Ireland was correctly focusing on the agri-food sector as the sector most vulnerable to a bad Brexit outcome. Uh, but to date, the sector is performing very, very strongly and certainly has adjusted to the new trading regime. Obviously, there's still a distance to go in this regard because uh, Brexit is still a movable feast, unfortunately, still a lot of uncertainty. But to date, the Irish economy and particularly the agri-food sector is proving remarkably resilient. So, Chris, that is a pretty upbeat story on the Irish labour market and the most important indigenous export sector, agri-food. Uh, you wouldn't be quite as upbeat about the UK. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey. No, I wouldn't, Jim. There are lots of things going wrong in the UK at the moment. Indeed, I have been meaning to keep a tracker of the number of articles that I see that have somewhere written in them, usually either in the headline or deep buried within the article, asking the question, why does nothing seem to work in Britain anymore? Uh, you might recall I actually wrote something about this quite some time ago and have just written three pieces uh, for our Substack site uh, exploring some of the many different ways in which the question is being generated, if you like. There are so many things, so many aspects to that question. Why is everything going wrong? Why does nothing seem to work anymore? It ranges from many different economic aspects through to social and political. You've mentioned Brexit. That's just one of them that cuts across all of those three categories, economics, social and politics. The NHS is another thing that's emblematic of what is going on. We've had strikes, which are ongoing all the time. There's an announcement today that many different parts of the civil service will be joining the strikers soon. So I would suggest if anybody is interested in, in, in any of this or all of it, that at least some of the, my pieces that I've been writing, and I'll be putting another one up quite soon for subscribers on our sub site. So th there's not enough time on this pod to go into all of this in great detail, but I'd summarise it in, in, in a number of ways under three main headings. The first main problem is one of economic stagnation. British economy hasn't grown for a decade and a half. And there are lots and lots of reasons for that. Growth is a very complex process. And one of the things that characterises populist politicians everywhere, including the UK, perhaps especially the UK in this regard, is that we keep pretending that there are simple solutions to complex problems. And for as long as we keep that pretense up, then we will remain in trouble. And if we keep electing populists who say that they have the magic solution, the magic wand to these very complicated problems, in this particular case, the one of economic growth, then nothing is going to be done to solve it. We need a little bit of honesty on that. But the fact that the... So Chris, can I just ask, stop you there and ask you, I mean, what do you think should be done? What's the problem? Oh, there, there are lot, as you know, Jim, there are no magic levers or, or policy buttons that you could push or pull uh, that marked economic growth. One of the key reasons that economic growth has stopped in the UK for, for years now, not just over the last decade and a half, is that for decades, literally decades, both the public and the private sector has underinvested across a broad range of categories, buildings, uh, factories, schools, hospitals, technology, all forms of capital investment, private and public sector. If you look at the league tables that Britain is in, it's always near or at the bottom. We don't invest in the future. Investment is what generates future economic growth, and we just simply do not do enough of it. So we have to get the rates of investment up. And as you know, that's not an easy task. You just can't say, let's get investment up. You have to create a business environment uh, in which the private sector invests and you have to have the money for the public sector to invest. And if you don't have growth, you create this vicious circle for the public sector that less and less money is available for capital spending. So you get into this doom loop. But ways have to be found to get British capital spending up. I think the political instability really since 
David Cameron, going back to his election in 2010, has been dreadful. And political instability is not a great environment for anybody to do any kind of business in, let alone invest in the future. So I think, you know, changing the prime minister with the frequency that we've done, changing the, uh, cabinet ministers with the frequency that we have done, that has, that's got to stop. I think that other reforms, we talk about structural reform in, in all sorts of different ways, but the education system in the UK, the school system in particular, but also universities to an extent, but particularly schools is not fit for purpose. We send out far too many kids who uh, are unable to do basic arithmetic, are unable to uh, read properly, are unable to acquire the skills necessary to, for them to operate in their lives and in particular in the economy. Uh, so that those are the sorts of things that I would do and a lot more beside. There's a long list of things that one might do to, to try and boost economic growth. But as the, as the fella said, you wouldn't start from here because you're in a doom loop. Because, you, because although I might urge greater spending or capital spending, investment, the money for the public sector isn't there because of what they have been doing for the last decade and a half. And this doom loop feel, the, 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 the sense that nothing is working, has been particularly bad in the UK because I know other economies have been struggling as well. Uh, but one of the things that's accompanied this stagnation of the last 15 years has been a big, big rise in inequality in the UK, much bigger than elsewhere. So it's got a European-style tax system now. European taxes, uh, UK taxes are now very high, but they've got US-style inequality. And it's not just at the bottom of the income distribution that this is being felt, that if you are the median, right in the middle of the income distribution, you're now worse off in the UK than you are in France, in Germany, in Australia, in Canada, countries that Brits traditionally pride themselves as being either equal to or better off. If you're in the middle of the income distribution or anywhere in the bottom half, you're a lot poorer than your equivalents in countries that we traditionally think are, are equal. So if you have that economic stagnation, plus the inequality that you got, and then you get the big shock of the energy price rise and inflation in general, uh, it's always poorer people that feel those sorts of things the most. And so the UK has been hit particularly hard by inflation, by the rise in energy prices, because we have so many people that can't afford it, can't afford those price rises. So it, it, they all these factors interact with each other. So if you have this really strange income distribution in the UK, much more unequal than, than elsewhere, and no growth. It's a very, very toxic combination. And even conservative commentators, Tory commentators, are starting to notice this and say, blimey, we've got to start doing something about this. They haven't got many ideas about what to do. So somebody like somebody called Lord David Willits was writing on a website called Conservative Home. The, the website says it all the other day about precisely these issues. And it was producing, the first chart that this article produced was from some, for a report produced by the Resolution Foundation, which has been doing great work in this area. And I'd urge anybody that's interested to have a look at that. So that, that's the economic background. But the one thing I wanted to mention today is, is the NHS. And the reason why I mention that is that it's interesting in and of its own. Because I know in Ireland you have similar debates about your own health system, that the situation in the, in the NHS is verging on catastrophic. You can see that now horribly in, in the excess death statistics. The last week of the year, just one week, Jim, there were 1,600 more deaths than would normally be expected. 
Now, of course, several things will be driving this, but it's clear that the horrendous delays in ambulances and A&E departments is leading to people dying that shouldn't be dying. And there are lots of interviews with doctors, articles by doctors, uh, giving examples of, of the ways in which people are dying that shouldn't have died, that died of curable conditions. And the, the, the NHS is in crisis and they are not solving this crisis. It's quite clear they are going to have to give the nurses more money. They are going to have to come up with some more money from somewhere. And everybody knows this. And um, we're just going through this dance whereby people, they're introducing legislation to stop strikers from striking and provide minimum levels of service instead of getting on with actually fixing the problem. Uh, You know, the statistics about wait times in A&E, wait times for uh, surgery are just eye-watering and uh, that's a real, real problem. And there's no sign that this government has any understanding that uh, the problem is is just getting worse. Um, There's a wonderful article today by David Aronovich in the London Times um, and he says, you know, people in the UK no longer expect to be seen by their GP to get an appointment with a specialist quickly. They don't expect to call for an ambulance and get one to arrive promptly. And that if they go to A&E, they expect to find themselves in the anteroom to Hades. That's, you know, very well put. And so... Well, Chris, Ireland is no different. Is it as bad as that, Jim? Yeah, it's pretty bad at the moment, absolutely. Are people actually dying in ambulances? Apparently, um, there, you know, there have been stories in University Hospital Limerick, for example, about huge delays in ambulances and people not being seen. The medical people have come out in recent days sort of begging people to come to present for medical attention. People are now afraid to present for medical attention because they believe they'll be waiting for yonks. Um, getting an appointment with a GP is incredibly difficult. So the, the primary health service in this country is under huge, huge pressure at the moment. There's a distinct lack of GPs. And as a result of that, more and more people present at A&E. And A&E is basically incapable of dealing with it. And of course, there is the legacy of COVID as well. A lot of people didn't present for disease and illness during COVID. And there's now a sort of a a catch up going on. So uh, what you describe in the UK... um, does resonate with what's happening to health service here in Ireland at the moment. At least that would be my experience. I don't want to get into a competition of, you know, just how bad each respective health system is. But there was, I think it was on the BBC. I can't quite remember where I saw this. There was an interview with a GP who was talking about precisely this issue of people not attending because they can't get an appointment. They know they'll have to wait. And as Aronovich says it in his article today, some of those who who, who uh, can't get treatment for one reason or another, who can't afford to pay for private treatment, not least, they, they go dark. They don't want to bother the NHS with what they consider to be routine conditions. And then they turn out to be anything but routine. You know, there's a, there's a big rising death toll in the UK from treatable heart conditions amongst middle-aged men. And there's a sharp increase in the number of people dying at home. This thing that I saw on the, in, I think, the BBC the other day was talking to a GP in a place called Mountain Ash in Wales. And he was talking about a female patient of his who presented in his surgery 
who had been walking along the street. And I apologise to any readers that find this description somewhat uh, disturbing, because it is. So trigger warning, uh, This what I'm about to say is particularly gruesome. Uh, part of this lady's breast had just fallen off. And the reason being is that she'd had breast cancer, which she'd left untreated, and it had uh, caused a hole to develop, and uh, part of her breast fell off. And she was then immediately placed, inevitably, in palliative care, because that's the only thing, apparently, this uh, doctor could do for this particular person. Uh, that's one very small example, uh, horrendous and, and, and terrifying, um, and very sad, obviously, for the, for the person concerned. But the situation may well be bad in Ireland, Jim, but I can assure you it's absolutely dreadful in the UK. And from the economic perspective, 17% of the working population in the UK is now reporting itself as long-term sick. I don't think you've got that problem, have you? No, we don't. No, no, absolutely not. And, and Chris, you, you described the UK economic story and, and, and the failures there. What have we done right here in this country I, I suspect there's a lot gone wrong that's very similar to what's gone wrong in the UK. And the there there are all sorts of uh, resourcing issues. One of the things that's talked about in the UK a lot is the government uh, likes to say that throughout all of the era of post-2010 austerity, it protected the NHS by preserving spending in real terms, roughly flat. And in an era when they were cutting government spending, that austerity thing that we experienced on both sides of the Irish Sea, they, they have the proud boast that they maintain spending in real terms, which ignores the fact that the population was growing, the population was getting older, and medical technology uh, was advancing, such that in order for you to stand still, in order to honour that promise of protecting the NHS, you actually had to increase spending in real terms to at least keep it constant on a per capita basis, because on a per capita basis it's been falling. So they didn't honour the NHS. There's smoke and mirrors over their claims. So the first question, of course, is resources. There haven't been enough devoted to the NHS. The NHS was formed back in 1948 when people essentially lived till they were 65 or 70 and then died. And so it's a, it's a set-up, uh, a system, a process set-up that really is, is very different because we now have lots of people over 70 with chronic long-term conditions that need treatment that it didn't have back when it was set up. Uh, the social care issue, which I know is common there, we have an awful lot of beds in the NHS blocked by people who should be in care homes, shouldn't be in hospital. Hence, the you know, you can't get people out of hospital, so you can't get people into hospital. It's one of these problems, Jim, that is incredibly complicated. I suspect there's lots of overlap between the two. Uh, the administration of the service isn't fit for purpose. The, frankly, the, the administrators are not good enough. You know, the, the, the political process interferes with um, efficient administration of the health service. There are too many hospitals. You need more bigger hospitals rather than all the cottage hospitals that you have dotted around the UK. I think you have a similar problem in, in, the, in, in Ireland. You can't close a local hospital, despite the fact it would be the most efficient thing to do. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap. I'm not sure that I could identify all the things that you've done right I suspect that if you don't actually learn the lessons from the UK, you might well end up in a situation as bad as we've got here. OK, yeah, the one, the one thing I wouldn't do about Ireland's economic performance is become complacent about it. Chris, um, moving over to the other side, the Atlantic, um, we have observed over the last couple of weeks the circus that was the 
efforts to appoint a Speaker in the House of Representatives and eventually Kevin McCarthy got the job after I think 14 votes and um, he I mean everything I know about Kevin McCarthy certainly would not fill me with joy um, but to get elected he had to basically make significant promises to people um, 20 or so Republicans on the flat earth side of the party um, in order to get over the line. So huge compromises made that will have huge implications for policymaking in the States over the next couple of years. But th that leads me on to the piece in the New York Times over the last couple of days. Uh, the title, as I mentioned earlier, is The Party is Over for Us. Where do we go now? What did you think of that piece? Well, it was a fantastic piece, and I'd recommend anybody to take a look at it to get a deeper understanding of the political process and what's going on in the United States. It's not a happy read, but it is very interesting from any, for anybody that, that try, is trying to figure out where we go from here in the States and indeed how we actually got to here. You mentioned Kevin McCarthy, and you mentioned the flat earth wing of, of the Republican Party, the grand old party, the GOP, as it's, off, as it's colloquially called, and I think the tone of this piece would say that the flat earthers essentially have taken over, uh, that the old GOP has gone. You've got David Brooks and Brett Stevens, who are two long-standing right-wing commentators in the New York Times. They do have them. It's not just the lefty liberal thing that uh, many people assume that it is. David Brooks begins the piece by talking about his tribe, about his people, um, really back in the 80s and 90s, and talking about labels that are used in a way that Americans use them, not necessarily the way that we use them, certainly in the UK. So he talked about his tribe as being pro-conservative, that small c conservative, not Tory in the sense that I would use it in the UK. It's not the Conservative Party. The Republican Party is a Conservative Party. And uh, he doesn't think that the modern uh, Republican GOP Party is conservative. He thinks it's just essentially... Uh, an anti-left coalition. They're not for anything, they just know what they're against. And he thinks that's consequential because the new right, the, the flat earthers, you call them, just, they just want to blow things up. They want to break the establishment. Old-fashioned conservatives, uh, people like somebody I've mentioned on this podcast before, David Frum, became never Trumpers. And in, in, in uh, David Brooks' words, the rest, the new got party, simply went bonkers. And... Stevens joins in and agrees and says they weren't conservative, they were just illiberal, which is a big, big difference. And the conservative movement, this is a nice quote actually, the conservative movement went from innovation to idiocy without passing go. Old-fashioned conservatives believed in liberalism, faith in democracy, human rights, rule of law, free speech, political compromise, the political process itself. They believed in building things, not just tearing things down, which is what the current mob want. The, you know, David Brooks goes on, he talks about the way in which the establishment conservatives of the 90s got discredited. And we know what discredited them. It was the Iraq war, the great financial crisis, the fact that meritocracy, the great American dream of advancement is dying, that you don't actually get where you previously thought you would get with a bit of luck and hard work. And the culture war, of course, between metropolitan elites and everybody else in the States didn't help. Then what happened after all of those Iraq war, financial crisis type things is that the fringe gained popularity and power. And then, again, another great quote, they went completely wackadoodle. And Brooks traces the institutional and moral collapse of the Republican Party between the years 2013 
2016. And he admits for the very first time ever, this right-wing commentator, that he actually voted for Barack Obama. They note that past Republican presidents that you could have described as populist, people, of course, like Nixon and Reagan, who are heroes for a lot of these wackadoodles, Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency. That exists because of him. Nixon expanded the Equal Opportunity Commission. He did very pragmatic, liberal things. Reagan worked... And, and Nixon, Nixon actually was on the brink of introducing universal basic income. Yeah. Ronald Reagan, hero of these wackadoodle new right-wing nutcases, he worked in a very bipartisan way with the Democrats to pass things like tax reform. And Reagan gave amnesty, the issue that really gets all these people going. Reagan gave amnesty to millions of illegal immigrants. These people, when they were being elected or campaigning, did express populist sentiments, people like Nixon and Reagan. But when they got into power, that populism didn't translate into policy. Today, say these guys, populism leads straight to nihilist policies. Okay, so what happens now? Brett Stevens is really interesting in this, and he talks about when people get on a bad path, when any of us as as individuals become alcoholics or drug addicts or, or get addicted to gambling or religious cult fanaticism. He says what happens to people in that situation is that they tend to follow the path down all the way to the bottom. When they either die or have the proverbial moment of clarity. And he thinks this is where the Republicans are going. And that he has hoped in the past that there would be moments of clarity, things that Trump has done, having, you know, uh, the Kanye West thing, all those sorts of moments that everybody hoped would lead to something have led to nothing. And so they think that it's still got decades to go. And he says that Politicians in the Republican Party are now trying to achieve one thing and one thing only, and that's to be celebrities and not to pass pragmatic legislation. To be a celebrity, you need feverish headlines. You need to be a social media influencer. You don't actually get involved in pragmatic politics because that does not help your search for celebrity. So he thinks that the Republicans will either crack up or revive more hopefully for him, after a moment of clarity. But that clarity will only come after defeat, and he thinks it will take decades. A question that arose in my mind, which they didn't address, is, yes, okay, it's all very well hoping for a moment of clarity after defeat, but what if Trump wins in uh, 2024? That is the opposite to defeat. So they think that Trump has turned the Republicans into a single purpose vehicle for cultural resentment. Coastal elites, of course, people in your favourite town of San Francisco, haven't helped this process, and they're partly to blame because they do so much to fuel that resentment. The, the key problem for David Brooks is that in society after society, country after country, highly educated professionals have formed a Brahmin elite class. All their kids go to the same elite universities. They do something called assortative mating and that they just marry each other within their own class. And they, are live, live, they all live in the same elite ghettos. And people not in that Brahmin class, looking up, if you like, uh, are now denied entry. Uh, in the past, uh, the American dream suggested that with a bit of luck and hard work, you'd have gotten in. But now you can't because the door has been closed. The ladder has been firmly pulled up behind them. So they're now saying, let's just smash them. Let's just smash this Brahmin, Brahmin class. So there's all this kind of stuff, loads more that I would urge anybody to, to read because it's just so fascinating and quite deep, deep in, in many of the thoughts and points that they express. I'll conclude with what 
David Brooks thinks about Ron DeSantis, who is the Republican hope, of course, to uh, counter Trump. And his description of DeSantis is really interesting, if a little scary. He says that DeSantis is Trumpy without being Trump, which is, which is one of the reasons why people are attracted to him. But he thinks that DeSantis has net negative social skills and net negative empathy. So he's a really weird human being. And he says that Trump at least was funny. Many people, his supporters at least, did find him charismatic, neither of which you can say about DeSantis. So he actually doesn't think DeSantis could sustain a two-year campaign against Trump and win. And the open question to which they do not have an answer, but it is such a scary question, Jim, is will the grand old party, the Republican, continue on the path to authoritarianism? Jesus, mad stuff. The last time I saw Trump being charismatic was in Home Alone. Um, I've heard Ron DeSantis being described as Trump with brains. So it's it's a frightening prospect, actually. And it just shows the level of uh, dysfunction, bipartisanship in the US political system at the moment. Um, it's really, really worrying. Chris, we better wrap it there. Um, I think we've gone over time. Uh, thanks very much for talking again and uh, talk next week. Speak to you soon, mate. Cheers. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 